building community through amplifying the voices and vision of innovative educational leaders, practitioners, and learners from South Africa. Welcome to JGF Amplified, where we engage the minds of teachers, experts, and leaders in the South African education system. Today, we are kicking off with part two of our Reflecting Sona 2023 series. Part one was Reflecting Sona 2023, the youth perspective. Part two, today, we have an intergenerational conversation with our dynamic duo, Mars Brown and Iviwem Tumbu. But before we get into the introductions and the meat of the conversation, we have a segment on our podcast called JGF Did You Know, where we engage a talk-worthy fact within the education space. So, Mars, Iviwem, before we get to introductions, let's, let's get into our Did You Know this year afternoon. So this was published by Rhodes University's School of Languages and Literatures on the 13th of June 2022 and it reads An African language including Afrikaans will be compulsory for all pupils until matric according to a new policy which could be implemented uh, in all schools next year, next year being now 2023. The plan which will be implemented incrementally until 2025 will see all pupils learning three languages. For the first time, Afrikaans has been included as an African language. Previously, the Department of Basic Education referred to African languages without English and Afrikaans. Marge, Iviwe, what are your thoughts on the concept of Afrikaans being embedded as a South African language? Well... I, I think it is, mm-hmm. and I think there hasn't been enough cognizance of the fact that Afrikaans is started as the language of the working class, the, the slave in the kitchen mm. in Cape Town. And um, the Dutch masters, colonialists, um, would have to incorporate some of the slaves' language into their language in order to communicate. And I know that... Um, this is denied by many Afrikaans people, but it really is the language of the kitchen initially and of the fields. And um, there are so many people of color whose home language is Afrikaans. Mm. And those people of color are South Africans. They are Africans. So Afrikaans wasn't brought to our shores, Dutch was. Yes. But Afrikaans morphed in the interaction between slave and master. I mean, Afrikaans in the South African context takes on a pigeon form because we yes. see iterations of Dutch, you see iterations yes. of uh, the Koine Sand languages, yes. Cape Malay, and, and, and. If you were, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's exactly that. Um, it is an African language because it was, I mean, we always think of languages, and if we ever compare Bantu languages or Nguni languages, they all are similar dialects. Right, that kind of uh, would would give an indication that there's a common a, a, a common ancestor or common genesis. So Afrikaans might have that in Dutch, but its genesis is, is African. Mm. It is African and well spoken by Africans, um, as Marge said, African slaves. And of course, the people that continue to speak Afrikaans in our country, majority of them are actually not white Afrikaners. It's much of the Khoi 
community, you know, up in the Northern Cape and the colored people of our country. So I would say that, I mean, it is an African language and should be recognized as such. Um, and I know there's a lot of, of politics that go with Afrikaans. Um, and I think sometimes the politics should be with Afrikaners rather than Afrikaans itself, because there's, an, there's kind of, you know, thinking that Afrikaans is for and by Afrikaners, which is not necessarily the case. Afrikaans as a language is inherently African. Good people, we are calling for a rebrand of the language. That is what we are saying. Um, this is a language for us all uh, and the kinds of racial and political monopolization of the language, the consequence of it is historical and also like future intergenerational erasure. Um, and having this conversation really rooted in creating the difference between the culture and the language is a thing that ought to be engaged. Well, that is our JGF Did You Know for this here episodes. Today's special guests, good people, they are JGF's dynamic duo. If you engage our Connected Summit 2022 session where we had the recipient of the Global Teacher Prize Award winner, uh, Keisha Thorpe, you would have seen these two in action. And Marge, how are you both doing today? I'm well, just mm. a bit tired, you know, coming from work. But I think I'm well and I'm hoping to be re-energized by um, this conversation today. It's always great to chat with you and Marge, yeah. you know, as a you know previous co-panelist. So yeah. I'm quite excited <laughs> to have this conversation with her. Marge, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. And uh, I must say, it's lovely to be part of the JGF family generally. And I always think that this organization does such extraordinary work. But I love your podcasts. I think you do such a good job, Matabo. So I'm looking forward to this. Thank you so much, Marge. Well, for people who don't know what it is that you do, Marge, I'll start with you. Uh, who's Marge? Where's Marge from? And what are you about? Sure. Well, I can't. I, how many years do I cover? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am a teacher by profession, also a human rights activist. Mm. And I now live in the Cape, having moved here in November. And I'm at the moment working for JGF on contract, looking at teacher mentoring. Mm. And I'm um, also being this year a teacher coach to some of the newly qualified teachers within JGF. How fortunate are we to have you, Marge, a contributor to our our vision for many years and now to fully have you formally in our family, really a long time coming. So thank, thank you, you so much, Marge. If you were, what are you about? Now I am from Cape Town, you know, mm. but as a Cape Townian Kosa person, I like to tie myself to the Eastern Cape. <laughs> so I'm going to say that I am Identity from... Identity <laughs> So I'm going to say that I am from Lady Frere, or mm. Kaitadu now, you know, mm. with the renaming. So I'm from Kaitadu near Queenstown, um, born in Cape Town, raised in Cape Town, but never cheaper. So Andililo Ichip, I've always went home. Yeah. So home, I, I identify home as, you know, the Eastern Cape. I am a teacher. I'm a high school teacher by profession. I can say that now, March. <laughs> <laughs> I am a high school teacher by profession. 
at Westerford High School. I'm a geography and mathematical literacy teacher. Mm. Um, I'm also an ed tech teacher now, digital education with Tumamina Teaching. Very excited for that. Uh, teaching geography. Um, so, yeah, that's me. You know, quite passionate about education. I think I identify as an educational activist. Yeah. You know, I think I'm a thought leader. You know, I like to write, pen my thoughts. And I think I'm a person that has an opinion on education in our country. And hence you are here, if you were, as we engage the State of the Nation Address 2023, which was shared by our President Sarah Ramaphosa on the 9th of February. Well, to ground us in conversation, I think it is important to define what SONA does, what it's supposed to do, so that we can measure our expectations as we unpack uh, the conversation uh, today. And the definition of the state of the nation address is it is an annual address given by the president to a joint session of parliament and marks the official opening of legislature it is designed to be a report on the economic and social state of the nation and includes a review of the past year and priorities for the current year this is a special and unique occasion where all three arms of the state are in the same place together. So it's giving very much, it's a once in in a year event. It's giving very much strategic outcomes from the former year, strategic objectives for the current year, and the country as a whole um, engages. I even dare challenge uh, the definition here. It says it's a special and unique occasion where all three arms of state are in the same place together. And its citizens, right? Mm. The fourth and uh, most important constituents really being the citizen. So I'm quite excited to hear. What were your first impressions of Sona, Evie? I mean, Sona this year was kind of a forced norm- normality. Mm. You know, um, I think uh, it looked extravagant as always. Um, and I thought, you know, I didn't see anything different. The chaos that I was expecting happened. Mm. Um, because that has been the norm over the past few years. I was expecting a bit of, I was expecting a bit of chaos that happened. Expected some, you know, uh, promises from the president. Mm. You know, those happened. Um, so I'd say Sona delivered, you know. A lot of promises also. But more than anything, I was shocked by the romanticization of the state of our country. Mm. I think, uh, you know, we, we the president was quite euphemistic in how he presented the state we're in as South Africa mm. um, and in all our sectors, really. You know, I think we kind of went soft on the direness of the situation in South Africa, both economically, you know, socially also, even environmentally, you know, because we know that for sustainable development, we, you know, we need to look at environmental state, mm. our social state and our economic state, and those are dire. And I think that this year's Sona really went soft on those. It did not paint, you know, a proper picture. I think it was a lot of under-reporting and a lot of window dressing. You know, um, I think as a person on the ground and what we've experienced, um, the issue of electricity was a big thing. And I think the way in which we reported on that and again promising, you know, solutions mm. and romanticizing a, a compulsory two years of load shedding as if it's luck. All systems go, you know, we just need extra two years to make sure that everything goes, you know, and I don't I don't even want to talk about the Minister of Electricity. Mm-hmm. But just those things for me, a lot of underreporting. I was quite disappointed um, that it did not really, you know, 
present or report on the proper state of our country, mm. the proper status of our country, which the SONA is meant to do. Mars. So it's interesting when you defined what SONA was because I often wish that it that SONA could be conducted almost as a board meeting is conducted initially mm. in terms of matters arising. So there's there often there is very little looking back at what mm. was promised mm. in 2022 mm. and then accountability of what was delivered from what was promised. Mm. It's almost as though you promised something in 2022 and then 2023 it's like a blank slate again mm. and there's no accountability of what was delivered. And even 2021, because really, if we're looking at it, a lot was promised in 2021 in terms of overcoming COVID. So at the moment, the current crisis supersedes the past promises. Mm. And I think that's what I was very aware of. And the fact that Sona is supposed to look at the social and economic, to me, Sona becomes political. Mm -hmm. It's very much political play. Um, and and we know that even the disruption was political. So it's it's playing a political game and yet delivering piecemeal economic and social promises with mm. very little accountability for what was promised in the past. Sure, sure. And now we look at the strategic outcomes from 2022. As Marcel puts it, it is just, it almost feels like New promises are layered on former promises and we don't even know the outcomes of previous promises. And to be in the position of uh, the president in 2023 in a context of crisis, honestly, uh, a, a crisis that is building from one department to the next um, and they amount to what we understand as, as a, the national disarray, we now on this podcast are sitting with 250 million rand education budget, right? And we know that the majority of this budget goes to teacher salaries. In your view, we'll start with you, Marge. What should be the areas uh, of, 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 of impact that this budget ought to focus on to meet us where we are now? So it's a big ask. With mm. that budget, mm. um, because there are huge needs in every aspect of education. So if we actually look at education and say, what are the different aspects? We're talking about infrastructure, mm. the need for curriculum reform, the need for institutional reform, the need for training of teachers and ECD practitioners, and the tag on of education assistance, and the, the matching of education to economic needs social-emotional needs and environmental needs. Mm. So how far can that budget go if there's not prioritization? Plus, coming out of COVID and the regression of our education system during COVID. So we play in catch-up as well as dealing with the backlog of needs in all those areas I've supplied. A person would argue the fact that the education department has... Uh, the lion's share of, of the budget, but engaging SONA and engaging uh, how the funds really are distributed, it almost feels like this budget really deals with the maintaining of a department, 
not necessarily addressing key issues which need to be solved, right? So paying off teacher salaries, um, doing this, that, and the third, and a budget specific to specific to the needs of the country right now. Um, if we were sitting on a budget, 250 million rand plus, what are the key areas do you feel we ought to be addressing? I mean, I think March has literally, you know, kind of hit it all on the nail. Mm. And I think the problem is we don't realize that COVID, we, now the big excuse is COVID, you know, so a system that was in fact, it was impacted by COVID and COVID created gaps, blah, 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 blah. But the problem is COVID hit a very fragile system. Mm -hmm. Our system was incredibly vulnerable and our adaptive capacity was incredibly low. You know, so we had high sensitivity and low adaptive capacity mm. because it was a failing one. And I think if we were, you know, if we had capable leaders as a country, COVID should have given us an opportunity to redefine and redesign. You know, it was an opportunity to really look at the way we do things, you know, and the fact that we continue within the standards that we're doing, you know. Infrastructure is a big thing. Mm. You know, we had poor infrastructure before COVID. We still have poor infrastructure now. Our kids learn in settings that really reflect their deplorable poverty and it becomes incredibly unfair. Inequality is a big thing in South Africa. Mm. And the government comes with initiatives. I mean, one being the sanitation appropriate for education initiatives um, called, I think, SAFE. And then they also had the Accelerated Schools Initiative, Delivery Initiative, um, you know, which is meant to kind of look at toilets, like simple things mm. as looking at toilet infrastructure which is which is a terrible thing i mean sanitation in our country is a human right and the fact that there are you know teachers and learners that don't have access to that each and every day mm. you know every day of their working every day of their schooling we can think of these confounding variables to our learning because the area in which we learn in which you know you'd know i'm quite passionate about mm. but the spaces that our kids learn in you know are quite important in the system so, uh, you know, for me, simple thing, before we look at digital education, online education, everything that is hoo-ha and fourth industrial revolution, I think as a country, we're not ready for those conversations yet because we are failing at the foundation. So we, I think we are busy trying to chase everything, every big thing, and not looking at what isn't working to, in order to build a proper foundation for us to build on. So I think we need to look at infrastructure. We need to look at the current curriculum, which is incredibly limiting, both to learners and teachers. Mm -hmm. I think CAPS are very different from, you know, the previous one, which, you know, was, was, was kind of, I'd say, haywire, you know, feel it, teacher as the leader. You know, CAPS is not delivering on what it's meant to be. It's meant to be a con constructivist curriculum, you know, where teachers facilitate learning. But it just controls time. There's too much, you know, teachers can't do, teachers can't teach all they do is just deliver because it controls the time, amount of time that teachers have in a classroom. Mm. So we need to look at those because we've had a few years of piloting. I think it came in at about 2014, 2013. Um, and we've had a good few years to see that, you know what, maybe we can polish up here and there. And 2025, I think, is kind of the big year of redefinition. But we need to really invest in those, a proper curriculum, proper teacher training, mm. you know, and, you know, um, proper infrastructure. For me, those should be the biggest things that we plow into, you know, before we go into digital infrastructure, you know, before we go into, you know, we're all busy about robotics. But to some kids, a mere laptop, a mere computer is a mere dream. 
You know, if you go to um, when my aunt teaches, for example, in the Eastern Cape, a lady you know, JSS, the kids, they can't use computers, you know. So yeah. you're going to come with coding and robotics. That just kind of, you know, widens the gap of inequality because yeah. the schools that have the infrastructure for that are already the schools that are doing well. And you're now trying to go and drop you know, teach coding to kids that don't know how to use a computer. I think it's a bit stupid of us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a mismatch. It's, it's, a, it's mismatch. a huge mismatch. So with what you're speaking to, Iviwe, with regards to COVID hitting already a fragile mm-hmm. um, department, uh, Prof. Nick Spall speaks mm-hmm. about how uh, the, the, the two years that we have had hard lockdown have set us back by mm-hmm. 10 years. Um, within the education system. And I'm like, that is that is unfathomable. Mm-hmm. What was the nature of the education system for two years to sit back on an entire system, uh, 10 years? And we also see stats around, you know, grade four learners not reading for mm-hmm. meaning, 82% to be specific of our children today between ages nine and 10 cannot read for meaning. And we hear at the State of the Nation Address uh, an 80% metric pass rate being celebrated without a nuance unpacking who this 80% comprises of, the conditions that facilitated for excellent results, but also the kinds of compromises that were made in standards to facilitate what we would regard, quote-unquote, as a pass. I'm really interested. This was a question asked by Faith Mangope. Um, on ENCA, and I found it fascinating. When we look at these uh, stats around literacy in South Africa, what is the issue? Is it no resources for learners? Is it poor teachers? Because we know that the quality of learning cannot exceed a teacher, its teacher. Is it the will, lack of will to learn? I mean, these are children, so I don't know if that could be a measure, but what do you think? Um, could be the issue with regards to this, Marge. So, again, we're talking about a, a really historical backlog and lack of political will in terms of reading. And we've had from time to time an intervention, but that intervention has not been sustainable. Mm. Um, for for a country to have over 60% of schools without any libraries, no librarians... And um, teacher training that doesn't incorporate becoming reading champions. Uh. We now have uh, the libraries, uh, the education assistants that are supposed to have this online course to become reading champions. But in order to become a teaching assistant, you need a 30% pass rate in mathematics. Mm. And um, there's no assessment of your literacy levels in order to be a reading champion. So you're going to do an online course, but you yourself might be basically illiterate, mm. and now you're going to be a reading champion. If you then are working in schools where there are no libraries and no reading material, and there is no dedicated budget for a reading plan in South Africa at the moment. Yes. Gauteng and, and the Western Cape have created a dedicated plan for reading resources, but the other provinces haven't. So we again continue the inequality between urban and rural schooling. And we have a lack of teacher training then in teaching literacy, 
lack of resources, and we need a dedicated budget to a national reading plan, not for a couple of years, but permanently until we raise the standard of literacy. Mm. So we have to go back to those foundational skills in our country, as Iviwe says, before we look at computers and look at ed tech as a silver bullet. Because if you cannot read and you cannot do basic computational maths, then you are you using the computer as a tool or is the computer just there in front of you and you constantly playing catch up because you actually can't read? I mean, to your, to your point of having a national reading plan that is not there momentarily, it is said that for us to meet the objective of having South Africans being, uh, South Africa being a reading nation, we would need 86 years yeah. of a dedicated, effective plan to meet uh, this, this goal and objective. Iviwe, what is the issue with literacy? Resources, is it? Teachers who are ill-equipped, is that the issue? In your view, you know, I think if we look at, if I jump and come, you know, to the current time you had, I mean, for about two years, there's a lot of, I was reading an article where schooling in certain areas for about two years and for certain children was non-existent. We had the highest dropout rates during the past two years mm. in the COVID years. And because the government was prioritizing with chicks, you know, so you can think about that. But we, there are kids now who are in grade three and four who are lacking huge skills, huge formative skills. Mm. The foundation phase is incredibly important. You know, dare I even say, I've seen that certain universities have moved away from even doing foundation phase PGCEs now and um, some are extending them into two years because they realize that the foundation phase in education is an incredibly specialized phase. Mm. And there are studies that show that teachers in the foundation phase cannot do maths. Mm. So if we think about that and we think of those formative years and we have teachers who cannot do maths, what does that do for our kids? If we look at grade four in our country, which is where most of these literature studies have been made, we, I always think, you know, there are many confounding variables there. Because in our country, from grade, about grade R to grade three, um, mother tongue education is the big thing, you know. Mm. So, so that kids, even in township schools, rural schools, would kind of do their formative education in their mother tongue. So you do everything in, is it class if you're an, is it class a speaking person? And you'd only do your first additional language in English, you know. But then when you get to grade four, this child now suddenly at grade four level mm. is doing mathematics in English, you know, supposedly in English, and only does Isitkosa home language in Isitkosa. Now, of course, there's going to be a huge disconnect. There's going to be a huge linguistic disconnect, especially for children who live in contexts where English is not spoken that much. They're only sit on TV if they do have a TV. And suddenly now, their textbooks are in English, but then in certain contexts, their teacher speaking is teaching in Isitkosa. So huge kind of cognitive, you know, gaps there. Like, I'm thinking myself, as a child, I would have really been confused. Mm. So we really need to think about this system of teaching because I'd understand the te from the teacher's side that the kids cannot understand what I'm saying if I teach in English. Mm. But then the curriculum is really begging teachers to teach in English because 
in order for us to have proper kind of linguistic gaps. And there's been a move now to teach every subject as if it was a language to kind of incorporate reading, incorporate writing, you know, so literacy in every subject. So as a maths teacher, how can you incorporate literacy? As a geography teacher, how can you incorporate literacy? So they're trying to do that. But teacher training, teacher training. I think if you look at teacher training in our country, it's, it's repulsive. I'm a teacher myself. And sometimes certain things you learn on the ground and it's if you're willing to learn. If you were on the point of teacher training, and this is a question that I've been I've been trying to make sense of in preparation of, of the series, are teachers trained for a country that's in crisis? Right? So when you are in 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 in, in the program that you are in, what kind of ideated classroom are you made to think about when you are in the teacher training school? I'm um, in the teacher training space. Are you meant to think of quintal one or you meant to think of quintal five? As a person who really shares their expertise with a with a with a with a teaching fellowship, and I myself, apart from being a Sunday school teacher, have never been a teacher herself. We have experts in the room yourselves who can speak to it. Marge, when teachers are in the training phases, what is the imagined classroom that they're being trained for? Well, I think that when we talk about teacher training, there is no such thing as one approach to teacher training, first mm -hmm. of all. We're talking about very varied approaches. Yeah. And in fact, one of the priorities we need is an audit, a thorough audit of teacher training courses mm. because the majority of teachers are trained through long-distance education mm. and are not given the practical approaches to the classroom. Everything is really theoretical and are prepared for this classroom in theory mm. and primarily classroom management, classroom mm. discipline, um, content. And, and a classroom that has infrastructure, a yes, classroom, yes. classroom that has resources. And yes. the, the, the yes. social economic state of our country mm. is not addressed within yes. those theoretical mm -hmm. models. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can I mm -hmm. jump in there, Matao? Sure, sure. I think your question is such a great question because I think as a person that has been trained as a teacher myself more recently, um, compared to you, Marge. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <I'd>, <laughs> um, I really think, I mean, I was reading an article, more than 50% of how teachers are produced through UNISA. Mm -hmm. More than 50%. Mm. And you look, when, when you look at the quality, there was an audit recently of the quality of the UNISA qualifications and the results were repulsive. Mm. Teachers, maths teachers that don't know maths. You know, and do you think of what's been kind of done, I mean, when you look at the PGC program nationally, which is meant to kind of accelerate teacher output because we're going to have a gap soon, and you look at the quality of teacher training, even at the best universities, which I think that I'd went, I went to, the way in which teachers are trained is not adequate at all, mm. at all. And I think what Marjorie's saying of the auditing of these qualifications is really important. It can't be that as a teacher, you only have two weeks of Ed psych, you know, like one week of educational management, this and that, you know, there's there's a lot that has to happen. And I mean, even B Ed programs, they are even more flawed because then there's a huge content knowledge gap. Teachers become pedagogical specialists, which is a big thing people are going to now. Mm. But like all you know, all you're taught is pedagogy and not necessarily content knowledge. We have, you know, in, in teaching there are three players. There's you, 
your learner and the parents. And each person has a role to play, right? As the teacher, you interact with the content and your learners. And you need to make sure that you have depth in your pedagogies, but also depth in your content. Mm. Um, I think we, we lack, you know, you talk about a PGC teacher, you know, big content knowledge there, I can vouch for that. Pedagogies, sometimes they lack because you only have a year. Be a teacher, big on pedagogy, content knowledge, there's a lack. And I think we need to really look at how certain universities have trialed. I've seen that certain universities have put in um, uh, their B.Ed. students into their mainstream courses for the first two years. Mm. You go, if you're going to be a science teacher, you go with the B.Sc. students, you go learn, you know, your, your sciences. At least that's, that's a step towards the right thing. But I think that teacher training should not end you know, after, because with the only one of the very few qualifications where just after varsity, after you get your qualification, you are, you are immediately a teacher. You know, what I'm trying to suggest here is not saying decrease teacher pay because people like don't treat teachers as, inter as interns, but rather have continuous training, compulsory continuous training. CIS has tried that through their continuous teaching development points. But, oh, Lord, you, it's a staff meeting, you get a point. A random thing that the department hosts to get a point mm. but if we were a bit more intentional and our council says played a bit more of an active role in ensuring that teachers are lifelong learners we'd have more yeah. because i shouldn't my training should not end at pgce and i'm fine and i'm in good standing i should be able to kind of train make sure the, the western cape has tried to do that mm. through the center for teaching and learning mm. in Coast river where they they present courses to their teachers for continuous learning. The Western Cape, again, is the only province that actually looks at, going back to the literacy uh, issue, that looks at um, standardized assessments before, before um, matric, where the, you know, at grade three level, the ANAs and the, and the systemic tests. The Western Cape continues with those because it sees, I'm not, I'm not advocating for the Western Cape here because I'm an employee of them, but kind of looking at where are our teachers? Where are our learners before matric? You know, before grade nine, what's the, at the end of foundation phase, have you achieved what we, we want to achieve? At the end of the intermediate phase at grade six, have we achieved what we want to achieve? Grade nine, at the end of senior phase, have you achieved what we want to achieve? Yeah. You know, because that, that's important. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's enough, but I think it's, it's something that our country should do, should really consider doing these tests, because then we're able to see where our students are. And I think that's what the Western Cape is getting. We might not be the highest province, but we always produce the highest quality of passes because there's an investment, you know, in our kids before matric, because everyone else focuses at matric level. The free yeah. state is doing great things, though. Yeah. You know, the Free State is a province that really funds and actually is intentional about funding education programs, whereas other provinces are not doing as, as well. Sure, 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 sure. And I mean, we're not here to have this conversation for having it just for just mm -hmm. for vibes, as, as we would say casually. But looking at our civic duty and looking at organizations who are privately trying to address the the education system and whatever capacity that they have, the Jake Travel Fellowship being one of them, it is always good to know how we are partnering with government. And SONA presents an opportunity for us to sit to hear from government. This is where we are. 
and this is where we're going and this is how we can participate in us collectively getting to the goal. Admittedly, um, one can say that that was not achieved. And you find now the cycle where education in particular becomes this tokenized area of conversation, right? Um, and we engage in robust conversations and after the conversation, what happens? And I mean, ironically, that this comes from a podcast and we are having a, a conversation, conversation about it. Yeah. But a conversation with a cause. Mm. How do we transition as members of of this country, right? How do we start thinking of education as a space where we can implement our efforts in as a person who doesn't have a child, as a person who has a child, as a person who has no proximity to the schooling system, and as a person who does, how do we collectively start thinking about education beyond it being a provocative uh, conversation point? I'll start with you, Marge. So for me, we, we cannot look at education in isolation. Mm. We have to look at what the, the sort of buzzword is, a, a wraparound approach. Um, and again, like the, there's lack of carryover from one zone to the other, there's also not a lot of indication of how departments, government departments talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we need far more interdepartmental communication and planning. Because every department gets their budget and they go off and do their planning and they work in silos. And in a way, we then have this mismatch between the needs of our country as they translate into education. So if you have gender-based violence in our country and there's an office in the president and there's focus by, and coordination with NGOs around gender-based violence, a lot of that is aimed at women mm -hmm. and how much does that translate into schools? Mm -hmm. um, not only in terms of educating um, schools how to cope with the trauma and the trauma in primary schools even mm -hmm. is just so overwhelming in places where these little children come to school having faced either domestic gender-based violence or face gender-based violence at school. Mm -hmm. So their schooling is the last thing on their mind. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, the president spoke about the need for a safer society. Well, that safer society is not just in certain ways around crime or whatever. It, it translates into how do we make our school safe spaces for, mm -hmm. for children away from predatory teachers mm -hmm. and, and, and older children in the school? How do we educate parents and protect children at home? How do we provide more social services within schools? We have, we have such a dire need for more educational psychologists. So um, we can talk about the curriculum and we can talk about all those things, but for me it's a holistic thing of healing our society. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about, for instance, ed tech, well, we know during COVID schools were targeted so many schools were actually broken into for the food that mm. were from the food feeding schemes as well as the computers in the computer centers so now what's going to happen when we try and actually initiate edsec in crime. in you know mm. a crime increases 
And um, unless the president does deal with the load shedding, how do you actually have EdTech in communities where there's no backup system? Mm. So for me, we just have to now, I would like to see an, a coordinated national plan, not just a that's under, under safety and that's under education. Um, how much are these departments talking together? And then, as you say, is there coordination and acceptance of the fact that where the state has failed, the state has to bring on board NGOs. And again, with reading, Western Cape Education Department and Gauteng are in coordinating their reading program with NGOs and, and acknowledging that. But in many places, there's kind of this gatekeeping and NGOs are not actually welcome into the government sectors. Mm -hmm. So that attitude has to change because there is such knowledge um, within NGOs, tried and tested practices. Mm -hmm. And those two provinces are going to progress because they don't hold NGOs at arm's length. Mm -hmm. um, you know what Marge is saying is so true, Matabo, because I work with certain NGOs where I had a geography department and now they just branched to Limpopo. And here, they're in the Western Cape, they're in Gauteng, they're in the Eastern Cape. Um, in the Western Cape, they partner with schools, they partner with the government, they even have a program that is funded by the WCED. They went to Limpopo and the drawback, the huge drawback they got from schools, they got from communities. I think there's, there's really this thing of, in other provinces of NGOs as a threat, instead of, you know, a, a, an entity willing to assist. You know, I think I really, we need to really unravel that and, and, and unpack why our people react the way they do. Uh. But again, going back to your question, Matabo, and the tokenism of, of education, I think that's, that's, that's quite a big thing. Because, you know, the president spoke about um, kind of education being the most powerful instrument to, to end poverty. Mm. That's always the thing that goes on. And honestly, it is. Because most, if not all, of our country's future is in the education sector. What do you do about that? Do departments speak to each other? Always, I always. I mean, the biggest partnership now that we're going to see is the conversion of ECDs and and grade R teachers between social development and education, and that has proven to be a disaster because teachers haven't been paid, others have been drilled over. Says this thing forever to give teachers their registrations, you know, issue of pay and all that. No communication between social development and education. Mm -hmm. You know, and and this is a this is something that is, has been on the table for so long, and once it's getting enacted, there's poor communication. So what Marge is saying is not really a thought; it's something that's really happening. Because in our sector ourselves, social development and education are not are not are not communicating. A lot of the times, when schools which di report directly to departments, provincial departments, when they report about things that are not working, maintenance in their schools and everything, the department says, we'll speak to public works. That's not in our jurisdiction. Public works, it's public works we've been to, to do this as a government building, so you need, we need to report to public works. But there's no channel in public works for schools to report directly to, you know? So we really need to look at how departments and different state entities coexist, you know, because they all need each other for the proper running of schools. Mm. There needs to be a national plan, as March says, that, that includes everyone to see how they can 
all work together to make sure that, you know, back when I was at school, when I was a bit younger, I see those programs are not there anymore. You know, health, we used to see nurses, nurses used to come to school. We used to have a program called Help to Read. Um, and we'd get people here in the West Cape that would come and, and um, you know, teach us how to read. Health, we used to be, have health education. Um, uh, uh, traffic services used to come to school, you know, to teach us about roads and stuff like that. There's been a huge difference now. I mean, it seems like schools are silos. Mm. And it's only the WCD, in my context, the Western Cape Education Department, or, you know, DBE nationally, that kind of dictates what happens at schools. There is no proper communication between state between entities. Between state entities, yeah. And I think from what you have both offered so generously um, as responses, is going back to a country that is conscious of children, right? Um, for anyone who's listening, you're not a teacher, but what you do where you are your ability to be efficient in the work that you have been entrusted with, in your ability to treat people humanely and treat yourself humanely, there is someone who either is watching or as a result of your actions is receiving some kind of consequence or benefit from, from, from your actions. So this is really an encouragement looking beyond the education conversation, but Education is a doing thing and is a communal doing thing. Um, so thank you so much uh, for that, Marge and Eviwe. I'm quite curious in finding out from the both of you, we have spoken at length of what was addressed and what was not addressed. Very shortly in 2023, what are three things that the president should strategically, with the stakeholders involved, pay mind to, to help us move towards uh, rehabilitating the state of the education systems. Three things in 2023, Mr. President, these are the areas of concern in my view. Marge. I would say that he has to focus on the foundational phase, basics, and maybe even trim the curriculum to focus particularly on literacy and numeracy mm. and um, raise those levels. Teacher education, because we have so many new teachers being trained and yet so many dropping out. So um, focusing on that audit of teacher education and its relevance mm. to the needs of our country mm. and taking into account rural and urban schooling needs, mm. as well as um, incentivizing, I think, schools to mentor teachers, not just exploit them mm. so that they stay in education. And that, that, that in, in itself takes support. And then resources. Um, we still, we, we, we can't say that we won't have another COVID and we won't have another crisis. And children went back home with no textbooks because they were sharing textbooks at school and with, and with no devices and with no means of actually staying in the game and so right now we have a lot of absenteeism of children mm. and um, who's actually trying to keep those kids in the system mm. and make or make sure that they come back into the system mm. so the needs are so multifold it's difficult to identify three, three yes all equally important if you were what what are your top three 
I mean, I think just I'm not going to repeat margins because that's true enough. May add on those. I think a bit more intentionality on our three stream education model. So which is the academic, vocational, and um, the occupation. So occupational, academic, and technical. Those mm. are the three. Mm. And access to those. Because I agree with, with those three streams, but not everyone has access to that. So kind of accelerate access, especially on the vocational and technical, so that other people have access to those. So I mm -hmm. think that that's something we need to be wary of. And teacher retention for me is becoming a big thing. And mm -hmm. I think as a teacher myself, many people that I know that are really good, that are really passionate, are sitting in the UAE, they are in China, or they went back into academia. And that's such a tragic loss for our system. So incentivizing teachers to actually stay. And then the third one for me, and which is most important, looking at education as a holistic system. Mm -hmm. Because education can help us with context. We need more professionals in, um, what do they call, in health they have, um, uh, 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 there's a term, you know, in health, health, they have health and rehab, but they, there's a there's a term for other professionals that help in health, but to actually be intentional about including psychologists in the edu education system, social workers, libraries, all the other people. Schools are not made only of teachers. The only way we need more professionals in the system, as March says. So I think that inclusion and looking at schooling, you know, holistically can help us kind of you know progress as a country. Iviwe, you mentioned. And I thought that would be the last question, but I have to ask this one. When speaking about teacher retention, uh, in light of the teacher dividend, half of the teachers that we have in the public school system will no longer exist in the next decade, right? And we don't have now a following an influx of teachers to to meet this 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 loss that we are going to face. In your view, I'll start with you, Evie, how does mentorship look like in light of the teacher dividend? I think, which, I mean, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, um, you know, on kind of how we present teaching, you know, like what teaching means in society. Mm. And, and how we present teaching as a country and how we value teachers is what's going to determine whether we have enough teachers or not so if we actually as a country look at education and look at the work that teachers do looking at that work and seeing whether you know how much teachers earn how they are trained and how much we value teachers do teachers feel important do we feel valued by the country by the system itself a apart from 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 the pay you know i think if we look at those as you know, the DBE playing more of a nurturing role rather than a policing role, I think we might see it a different. We might see quite a huge, we, can, we might see more teachers stay. Mm. And if teachers were actually allowed to do their jobs and teach, you know, teaching is the least of a teacher's job. It's so administrative. If we cut that red tape and cut, you know, the time, trimming the curriculum, as March said, to give teachers an opportunity to actually teach, you might see more teachers stay because I think of my experience as a teacher myself. Mm. I'm teaching because I love geography. I went and studied environmental sciences. There's so much I want to do. But the curriculum itself does not allow me to do what I love doing because it is so prescriptive. 
Mm. It is so prescriptive. Mm. So if you're a person that loves what you do and you wait to teach because you love your subject, mm. you're going to leave because it doesn't give you that ability to, to kind of offload And exercise passion. your passion. Definitely. Mars, mentorship in light of the teacher dividend. So I do think that schools need to be incentivized to create mentorship programs uh. and that the mentors in the schools need to be trained uh. and because you can't just mentor um, off the top of your head. Uh. And mentors and mentees need space within their timetabling uh. for mentorship to take place. Uh. And so if you think of newly qualified teachers, they normally have the fullest timetable and the extramurals and everything gets thrown at them and it's sink or swim mm. rather than welcome. We want you to stay. We, we, we really are here to look after your well-being as well as your professional development. And there needs to be a whole attitudinal change within the department and the schools towards newly qualified teachers. Mm. And that needs to be translated into schools being given the space for certain teachers to be trained and have the space within the, the timetable to mentor. Mm. And if that, and, and you know, you have to um, weigh that up between the cost of training a teacher through university and then losing them with this high attrition rate in the first or second year of teaching versus the little bit of space you can create within a school so that a person who's come through all that training actually stays. Yeah. Well, it's it's a no-brainer. So, so, Mars Iviwen, as we close off, there is someone who's listening to this podcast saying, I want to be a teacher and I'm not sure if this is a thing I should be doing. There's so many <laughs> things being said around crisis and this, that, and the third. What can you say to fan the flame of such an individual? We'll start with you, Marge. I always believe that if you can't be part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. <sighs> and I went into education because I loved teaching, but I am still in education because as a South African, that's something, an area where I can contribute. And I want to be part of the solution in our country. I want to live with hope. I am energized by the classroom. Mm. I'm energized by the interaction with youth. And youth are our future. Mm. And if we walk away and throw our hands up in despair, um, we do so at our peril because we then are part of the, co we are compounding the problem. So for me, it all starts and ends with education. And what a privilege. What a privilege to interact as a teacher with youth. Um, we, we have to, it's only when you're in the classroom and you can see children learning and growing that you think there's just no better job than this. Mm. 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 Thank you so much. If you were. I think, you know, if you're a person that, you know, as much says, want to be part of the solution and you want to lead system reform, it starts with you. You know, you, if you understand that our country and our kids as a country are in need of quality education and you, you know that you can bring that, mm. I think you know exactly where you need to go. Um, and I think for me, I went into teaching because I, 
I see myself as a patriot. You know, you know, what can I do for my country? How can I contribute? Mm. How has my country contributed to me? Mm. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's it's hard to 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 see yourself as that because you were part of the system. Also, it is this very system that made me the passionate person I am. Yet I see many flaws with the system. You know, mm. quite a disconnect there. But I think if you're sitting there and you're thinking that, you know what, I I think I have deep knowledge. I think that I have a lot of energy and I think that I want to make a change. Education is the space to be. You get an opportunity to directly influence the future of our country. You get an opportunity to every day touch a life and improve a life. And if you are that person that wants to touch lives, want to make a better future for our country, be a teacher. So, and that is the slogan of this year uh, organization, the ethic and the heart and the cornerstone of what it is that we do. We are encouraging uh, individuals, high-performing individuals driven by conviction to be teachers in the South African classroom. Thank you so much, Marge. Thank you so much, Iviwe, for graciously sharing your knowledge with us. Yes, we are in conversation about education, but the words shared here really, we hope, catalyze movement in in anyone who's listening today as we ourselves in our various spaces are doing what we can when we can and how we can good people engage with the jake travel fellowship uh on social media go to your favorite search engine type in jake travel fellowship you'll get a good looking website on the website you will see all of our social media pages you will find us on instagram you will find us tweeting on twitter um, and we would love to hear your thoughts on this, your conversation. Firstly, your thoughts on Afrikaans being an African language. And second to that, the State of the Nation Address. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm Mata Wutladi. I'll see you on the other side of this. Cheers. Cheers.